Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded by me, Liam Miller. Here's our minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. Love, Rinse, Repeat is recorded on the unceded sovereign lands of the Gayamangal people, and I pay respect to their elders, past and present. My guest today, joining me from Germany, is Florian Cloak. Florian, welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's uh, really exciting to have you uh, here. We're going to talk today about your new book, The Fragility of Language and the Encounter with God on the Contingency and Legitimacy of Doctrine, which is out now with uh, Fortress Press and uh, the English translation was by Barbara Stone. So I'm very excited to talk about this book. Um, I guess we'll start really broad when it comes to the book, just about can you give us just a bit of a general overview of what what you sat down to attempt uh, in this work and I guess what compelled you to go, I'm going to sit down and attempt this? Um, I want to draw a greater picture. Um, In my my youth, I had issues with authority, as I think every young person has as such. And I grew up in a rather conservative setting um, in a Roman Catholic city. I attended a Catholic school with us quite unusual in Germany because most schools are run by the state. And I had always some struggles with answers that come unquestioned and and come as a given. And so I had my issues with authority as a very young person and that kept on going until I became older and started doing my studies in theology and German literature and language but it was always in the back of my head how to deal with authority as such. And I had a very um, simplistic notion of what a dogma is, what Christian doctrine is. It's it's something um, given from above, it's put upon you and you have to accept it, never questioned what it means. And um, so I, I struggled with it and I came entangled with the question how to deal with theology, how to deal with doctrinal statements and my question from um, being a scholar also in in German literature is how can words have inherently um, a a meaning of inerrancy infallibility Um, so before I um, dived into the matters of theology I wanted to clarify in my my work as such um, where to start from so I started with hermeneutics what do words mean what can we say about a different meaning Um, how do I understand the world and this is the first main part of of my journey towards what what good is a doctrine for and so I started with hermeneutics and I started with um, how to construct the world how to perceive the world how to um, translate our experience of our world into words. And it's never um, in a state of stagnation. It's always a process of how we have experienced and grow as persons mm. um, just on the hermeneutic side. And all of a sudden it becomes very fragile when God comes into play. And mm. he's, I would call him uh, for traditional reasons, he, um, I would call him uh, a gentle disturbance. He, he comes um, as an intruder and disturbs the way we understand and we see the world. He's not as we project him 
And this has to do with um, how we see him, how we perceive him, and how we go on with that. And so it's a kind of struggle how to deal with him, how to deal with our perception of the world, how to intermingle these things in, into one setting, into phrases, into words, into meaning. And um, what can come out of this if we come to a certain point where we say, I believe in this um, as an interpretation, as an existential gesture. And when certain things are way off in terms of interpretation, um, when somebody goes too far, there, there is a tendency of claim authority, claim uh, superiority in terms of interpretations. And that's when I want to step in and say, here's doctrinal statements, uh, something good. When something is out of bounds, something went way too far, something is approached with a term of uh, sovereignty in terms of authority as an a subjective gesture. Nobody can tell me what's good for me except myself, and I don't want anyone intermingle in my business how I approach the world. And when it comes to far, when somebody um, steps out of bound, steps out of line, and and claims authority and is approaching the world with a kind of violent gesture in terms of how to understand things, that's where I would say. Doctrinal statements are not that bad, and they have a, a great purpose and being a guideline. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. So you started to hit on a few things that, that we're going to discuss, which is really good. So the, the, the book is kind of has two main parts. Um, obviously mm -hmm. there's, there's a couple of other bits, but there's two main parts of God's initiative and then the human speech about God. Um now, obviously, this ordering is quite important. You know, it's interesting there you were talking about having started with hermeneutics and then kind of coming to the general disruption of God. Um, but here, so you've got this kind of general order of, you know, starting with once you kind of had some matters about language, starting with, you know, God's initiative, God's act, and then going to human speech. He talked to us about kind of setting that up as the, the, the order in which one begins to think about the, you know, the nature of doctrine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, my my starting point is quite a hermeneutical approach. We we don't start with a blank slate. We don't start as an empty page where nothing is written uh, on mm. it. Um, I would say, as for my personal view, we are very much inherited with the framework. We are indebted to tradition, and we are indebted to a cultural universe that shapes our view. Um, that shapes our perspective. And that's not nothing bad. And that's why I, uh, I came across Hans-Georg Gadamer and his book, uh, Truth and Method, Wahrheit und Methode. And, and he starts with um, the notion of a prejudgment um, vorurteil, which he was very much criticized within German um, philosophy for, for um, saying uh, a prejudgment, a prejudice, it's, it's something neutral, isn't that bad as such, but it's becoming bad as we cling to it, if we have a stagnation uh, gesture about it. And, and therefore, we don't start as a blank page, we don't start uh, with a blank slate. And we have a worldview that shapes us. 
and that shapes our perspective, our tradition, um, shapes the world, shapes our words, and the cultural mm. universe in, in which we are embedded in. And that's nothing bad, but it becomes bad if it's uh, just on a stagnation level. Mm. And when God um, as nothing that is within this world as in terms of a creational being comes into play, comes into contact and um, approaches us, it's, I would say, a gentle disturbance, a gentle intruder. And he does not work the way we project him. We want to picture him. Um, it would be uh, a thing of banality if we would just be the way we want to picture him. And the way he approaches us is a thing that makes us think. Mm. Um, it's about an irritation. He comes into the world and shows up the world as we as we see it is not the whole picture. Mm. I mean, the framework is kind of the same, but it is reconstructed and deconstructed by God's intrusion, God's disturbance, this irritation. And we have to rearrange that. Um, and this gives us a kind of uh, subjective disturbance uh, in the way that we are not the authors of the world. We are not the one who have authority over um, defining the world. And this gives us uh, a sense of lack of sovereignty and in a um, rather possible, um, rather pos uh, positive sense in the way that our world is not stable in terms of um, non-processality. And we are able to to communicate. We are mm. able to get in touch with each other and have a conversation about how we see the world. And God, not as a notion or a big cloud or, or something like that, he's a person and he approaches us. And our understanding of the world is opened up to have a conversation, to approach him and his disturbance as an invitation. And therefore, my uh, two points of God's initiative and how this impacts the way we think about it um, is, is crucial in that matter that God is the first one who approaches us and invites us to, to think about the world, how we see it, how our perspective is shaped by the traditions. If tradition is something good, if tradition is something bad, and how to um, proceed with it, how to get along with it, and maybe reconstruct it, reconfigure it, and try to be open for, for something better, newer, something that is worth um, um, having as a heritage. Yes, thank you. That's that's really helpful. I think, you know, you, so you established there, you know, and it's um, Marcus Pound who wrote the, uh, wrote the foreword. He kind of talks about the way, you know, that in your account argues, you know, human beings do not simply possess and use language as a tool, but actually born into an inherited language, a culture, a symbolic world of meaning. And, and I guess what, as we're saying is that then is this kind of form, helps form this preconditioned knowledge and, and a particular horizon that is then kind of expanded. But yeah, as you say, you've got to have something there to begin with, even if it's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not like the bad, it's just there. And then that's what that's where things begin to work, um, which I think is a very helpful kind of thing of, of, of helping 
you know, think about where we are and then what is meant to happen in the encounter with God. Yes. Uh, excuse me, I didn't get into the question. Oh, sorry, I didn't really, that part of it wasn't actually a question. That was more me just commenting on something you just said. But I, no, I, I think that's really helpful. Um, you talked a bit about sovereignty then um, and yeah. that we kind of get freed from this sense of uh, being the sovereign. Uh, and I think the book, through the book, there's this kind of holding together of both an emphasis on God's sovereignty and then mm -hmm. God's grace in self-revelation. That that you know, if you say how God comes toward us, God approaches us, and then and then there's this response. Um, but that 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 movement toward us comes mm -hmm. in such a way that we can still actually make a decision. Like we're not yes. overwhelmed so much by the by the majesty and awe that well, we just have to <laughs> obey. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and 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 this kind of balance between this sovereignty and this this kind of gracious um, uh, approach. A gentle approach um, comes up in a few places, but but I guess one part is in uh, around your conversation of holy scripture, um, and, and you kind of talk about that. In one part, you kind of talk about how neither God nor humanity can be attributed full authorship um, of scripture, and so mm -hmm. I guess I'm, I'm curious to uh, hear you talk a little bit about this balance of sovereignty and and kind of gentle graciousness, uh, and then how that kind of and that, that relationship between sovereignty and limit and freedom and then how that kind of shapes then thinking about scripture, for instance, and, and I guess in the broader sense, doctrine as well. Mm. Um, I want to start quite quite simple um, in, in the terms of who has authority over speech, who has authority over language. Um, I cannot control what other people think of me. I cannot control what other people do with my statements. I have no control over the interpretations people um, do with my work, with my sentences as such. So I, I cannot control language as such. There's something unstable. There's something fragile. And here I want to say it's not a bug. Uh, it's a feature. Um, it's something that is worth um, emphasizing. It's it's not stable, and therefore it's kind of a it's a it's a process being mm -hmm. uh, language, and in terms of uh, literature, in terms of holy scripture, in terms of doctrine, there there's a conversation possible. Um, it's nothing um, written in stone as such that we cannot discuss it, that we cannot have a conversation about it, and um, and that's why I want to say. Um, authority in, in Holy Scripture and authority in doctrinal statements is neither on God's part, not neither on, on humanity's side, because it would um, cause a stalemate. It would cause an, mm. an impasse that nothing is open for interpretation. And in this kind of play, there is a room, there, there is a wiggle room that conversation is possible, interpretation is possible. And different meanings are able to come out of that conversation. Something as an existential approach. What, what does the Bible say to me? What does Holy Scripture say to you? What does um, a sermon on Sunday have to do with my life? Um, 
there, there is a starting point, a common ground, language as such. It, it's a material for having a conversation, but it doesn't mean that it's a um, one-to-one uh, um, transformation from our mindset to, to another mindset. Mm. And language is a medium that ha- is not stable on the one side, but as uh, on the other side, it's embedded in time and uh, cultural circumstances. And therefore, language is charged with symbolic meaning. And this symbolic meaning has a, a surplus of, of significance. It's not just the signifiers, the signified, and that what we have in mind is way more broad than uh, just one simple meaning or one definition. If we just would exchange uh, definitions, there would be no conversation, there would be no play in it, there would be uh, no, no room for wigglement. And therefore, I would say it's, it's not a bad thing that there's no authority on that side or no authority on both sides. Both are authors in, in the possible, possible sense. They uh, try to do their best on their sides together in this room of conversation. But uh, it's not that one side controls what it means, mm. um, what, what there is in, in the end of that statement and how to, to inter- interpret it. Yeah. And I think like that's important in a sense of like, you know, because you say there's this fragility in language and this inability to control what one hears and interprets and, and how they use that. And so God entering into relationship and, uh, and, and entering into human speech or allowing humans to speak about God is a kind of entering into that fragility, you know, you know people can speak wrongly or poorly or um, haphazardly about God because uh, God is deemed to be spoken about. Um, and, and I guess you kind of wrestle with it a bit in in, in one part of the book where you're talking about the, the burning bush in, in, in Exodus 3 where God, where, you know, Moses and, you know, and this kind of what God does give up and they kind of and also doesn't in not allowing yeah. the name to be wielded um, necessarily, but but still allowing um, something to be spoken about. Moses can go and speak about um, God to the people. Yeah, and and um, my my emphasis on God's name in, in the Judaic tradition is therefore uh, meant as a gift. It, it's mm. a gift where humanity can approach God, can have prayer. Um, can pray to God and approach God in prayer, even if it's something they're wrestling with and and um, ask why this has been done, why this happened, and so far. Um, on one part, it's God approaching us on eye level. He gives us his name um, to have a conversation with him. And on the other side, um, the tetragrammaton is nothing that we have authority over. We cannot define who God is. We cannot define what he means, how, um, how he is meant to be. And mm. he is who he is. He establishes what he wants him to be. And he's in, in that position, the one who has sovereignty. And we are in a, in a lower position, but on eye level, in, in this term of um, the possibility of communication. But our gift of God's name is uh, also a reminder 
that it's a gift and we should treat it gentle. We should uh, treat it with respect and not use it in vain as something that we have uh, possession over, mm. that we can control, that we can put in a curse or something like that, that, that we yes. could be in a position of having control over God's name. So it's, it's a gift and it's a general reminder who's responsible. We are responsible for our use of God's name. Who has authority over God's name? It's it's God, um, and not we. But it's it's not a bad thing. It's our opening up uh, for having a conversation with God. So it's not just um, He presents us His name and nothing could be done so far. But it's an it's an invitation and a gentle reminder who we are, who He is, and that He can lead us um, through through history, through time. He can give us guidance insofar that we don't need to have the answers for all of that. Yes. Thank you for that. Um, so when you get to the, the next section on, on, on human speech about God, um, the, the Holy Spirit becomes, uh, you know, a, a prominent kind of character through this. And so I was, I was interested to hear a bit about your, about the importance of pneumatology uh, mm -hmm. in your work here on doctrine and and I guess whether you think that that's something that's maybe be, is or sometimes is lacking in in some of the more contemporary configurations around doctrine um like I think that's sometimes a bit of the critique around some of the church's culture and cultural linguistic um framings of doctrine is that there's kind of it's just almost this closed system around mm -hmm around the church um, and, and maybe is there enough room for, for the spirit to kind of rustle through and, 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 and stir things up. So yeah, be interested on, on yeah, your, your, the importance of pneumatology and your project and whether you're thinking that's a, a corrective or whether you're just on doing your own thing. <laughs> ah, uh, I mean, it's a great question about who's the Holy spirit and how is he intermingled in this whole process? Um, I, I couldn't tell if there's in, in the whole uh, theology scene a lack of uh, pneumatology. But on the other side, I'm, I'm very influenced by, by a good friend, uh, Jürgen Brundel, um, professor for dogmatics at the University of Bamberg. And um, he introduced me to uh, the... He introduced me to the combination of pneumatology and postmodernism. And mm -hmm. he comes with a approach that the Holy Spirit is always close to us, but we cannot tell if he's there or if he's not. So we have no control over him. And his main um, um, Bible passage is um, from the Gospel of John, the wind blows where he chooses. We, we have no control over him. Mm. And therefore... Um, the Holy Spirit, if he's in, in charge of uh, leading us into the truth and guiding the church, it is a, a marker of nonviolence. We are, have no authority what the end result will be. It is not ours to do, um, to do the math in terms of we have just to figure out numbers, draw a line, uh, sum it up, and at the end, there will be a, an equation that that is a, a definitive statement. When the Holy Spirit is in place, he's kind of uh, 
a gentle disturbance. He leads us, but we have no charge over him. We have no authority over him. And when pneumatology and doctrinal statements come together into play, it is something that is worth keeping in mind. He is the one who leads us um, in terms of um, epistemological approach. We are not the one who possess God. We are not the ones who have authority over God. And when the Holy Spirit comes into play, it's a gentle reminder. He is the one who's leading into the truth. Mm. And, and therefore, um, I would say it's, it's good that the Holy Spirit comes into play and the Holy Spirit is intermingled in the process of uh, doctrinal development because we, we don't know um, what will be at the end of the, this path, what will, um, will be the end results. And, and therefore, it's a conversation um, on eye level with, with the theologians, with the bishops, with the lay people, with uh, all the ministers and the bishops. But on the other uh, side, um, God is disturbing maybe an all-too-narrow perspective how to approach things. Um, when we think about we all have our perspectives and we add these numbers as an equation, it doesn't mean that our perspective in one sum is the end result of that. And when this is a conversation, our words become fragile, um, our perspective are opened up as an invitation to, to think about in a broader sense. And the Holy Spirit is um, marked as as the one who's leading, should lead this conversation, there's something about nonviolence. We do not chose um, how to, how to um, state this, how to um, make this a definitive statement and, and things like that. And therefore, I'm, I'm very um, indebted to Jürgen Brunel and his approach on the Holy Spirit as a marker of non-authority. Oh, thank you for that. That's really helpful. Um, so you you write later on in the book that um, you kind of talk about the early councils of the church being paradigms for the development of Christian doctrine. Mm-hmm. Um, you kind of note they don't emerge in a vacuum of traditions and theories, uh, and they are not unaware of conflict and controversy. So I, I guess I was thinking about this, you know, that, that if that's if that's what the paradigm of the development of doctrine is, is this like mix match, mix matching and 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 toing and froing of traditions and theories, if it's you know born of conflict and controversy, uh, if that's the the paradigm, then then is doctrine is doctrine sorry is doctrine fundamentally the product of past failure, uh, both both here the failure of doctrines that came before but even mm-hmm. more even more so you can say the, the it's the product of the failure of scripture not to be able to answer all the questions in advance right to, to to leave these wide open um fields of inquiry uh into the nature of christ and the and the and the nature of christ's significance his death and resurrection um so is doctrine just you know something we have to do because <laughs> everything before it hasn't worked or, or, or am I being just a bit too nihilistic and, uh, and defeat us at the jump here? Mm. I, I wouldn't call it a bad thing that failure happens. I, I would mm. say failure is bad. And I'm, 
I'm uh, very fond of Marika Rose's uh, Theology of Failure. And mm. she starts with a quotation from Samuel Beckett, um, fail once, fail again, fail better. And therefore, I, I wouldn't say doctrine isn't that bad because, mm. because it comes out of a place of failure. I would say doctrine is, is something worth acknowledging because it acknowledged where failure happened. And, mm-hmm. and, and therefore, uh, I, I want to say, I, I had a very simplistic notion of what doctrine is, what a dogma is. And um, I'm very fond of that, that I was able to write this book um, because I, I could uh, rearrange my conception of mm-hmm. what doctrine is. We, we don't believe in the doctrine we don't believe in in this sentence, in this Greek word, in this Greek expression, in this Latin oppression, uh, expression, as such, and so forth. Um, I would say it's a, it's an approach of us having language as our medium to have a conversation with us, to have a conversation with God, and sometimes we step out of bounds. Sometimes we go way too far in our um, in our stance of superiority, in our stance of um, of interpretation, and when our interpretation gets too far, I, I would say it's a failure. When when I reduce um, uh, as another example, when I reduce Franz Kafka's work as it's just the father, it's just his being Jewish, it's just his being that, and it's his depression, it's his uh, catastrophe of modernity. And, um, and Central Europe at this time, I, I reduce it to a very simplistic notion. And if I acknowledge this failure, Franz Kaska's work is not just the father. It's not, it's not just his being Jewish. And I'm open for different interpretations. I'm, I can acknowledge as, as a statement, Franz Kafka's work is way broader than his problems with his father. As um, um, interpretation guideline insofar. I would say with um, quite the same is true when dealing with theological issues. When I get out of bounds and I reduce um, uh, Christ's nature to just being human, or um, I describe, um, try to do a statement, Christ's nature is just about his being as divine and um, his being human is reduced to a very shallow uh, level where it has no significance or relevance to us uh, anymore. Then resurrection, his uh, incarnation is kind of uh, irrelevant. And when we have that kind of guideline and where, where we can see failure happened, and it's good that failure happened in terms of we know where interpretation goes too far. I wouldn't say it's it's too bleak or it's uh, too nihilistic or something like that. It's good to have failures, <laughs> um, but it's it would be bad if we stuck to failures and we would just uh, have that narrow mind space and wouldn't recognize, wouldn't acknowledge our failure. So a culture of, of failure is very much adapted to the doctrinal development. Where we know failure happened, it's good to have failure, but it would, um, it would be a backslash. It would be something 
even worse when this uh, failure wouldn't be acknowledged as failure. And therefore, it's, it's good to have um, doctrine as such to have a guideline, to have uh, guardrails that, that lead us into this path. And I wouldn't say um, that, that these are um, statements that, that we have to believe in. I would rather say they're kind of a grammar, they're material, they're a concept, a framework where we have to think with, where we have to think within, or just mm. as, as a musical approach, when you have certain scales, when you have uh, certain arpeggios, or as such, that gives you a framework how to deal with it, how to play with it, and in a very neutral sense. And if you play a wrong note, you can acknowledge why it could be wrong, why it wasn't that good, why it was... Uh, rather misplaced, and it could be put in a in a better place somewhere, somewhere else, somehow. And to have this kind of mindset that we cannot avoid failure at all, mm. we are not perfect, and perfection would be something that I wouldn't pursue at all. Perfection means uh, such a such a timeless stability that no play is possible, that no conversation is possible. There's no room for, for wigglement. There's no room for play or having a conversation. And therefore, failure is good. Yeah. But it's, it's way better when we acknowledge where failure has happened and to learn from it. And therefore, we, we know where failure happened and try to fail better the next time. Mm. Mm, I like that. Thank you. I was, I was thinking of this section toward the end of your book where you write, doctrines of the church are statements that lead into the mysterium of Christ. They are therefore not identical to it because of the limits of language are consistently being transgressed by their overarching greatness and transcendence. Doctrines are professions of faith. They are first and foremost statements of a hopeful faith. They have the structure of proofs that refer to a future completion that has already begun proleptically. This explains why doctrinal statements themselves can be both true and correct without losing their human conditionality. Thus, doctrine and tradition have an implicit element of openness and surplus rather than closedness because of uh, Dea Semper Maior. So I thought, yeah, I, I was really drawn to that passage um, in the book as, um, you know, because there's, there's lots, I guess, at the contingency, um, but here, this, this moment of this is the legitimacy of doctrine that, that we, can, we can be very upfront human words fragile limited but there's actually a surplus in it um that we can still look at something and say yes true and correct uh we can still can still encounter these words fragile and born of controversy as they might be and go actually this is this pathway into the the greater mystery of christ that is not um subsumed or equated with the words i just read um but i'm but i'm drawn to it and 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 further deeper in which i thought was very um encouraging yeah absolutely and um this this kept me thinking how to approach with doctrinal statements even if we're not living in late antiquity if we're not living in um east mediterranean um, landscapes or such and there's some symbolic universe that has a surplus. Words have mm. greater meaning than one definition. And 
from, from this point, I tried to approach um, the doctrine of original sin, not in this book, in um, the second book, when I uh, talk about um, aesthetical redemption, redemption as aesthetics, and I try to cope with original sin and the statement mm. Augustine's thought on traditional sins. But in, in this very matter, I try to avoid, to omit um, Augustine and this very dark stuff, this very dark matter. Everything is bound to sin. Everything is overshadowed by sin. But I try to uh, look from the other side. And um, when we have a notion, a doctrinal statement about original sin, on the positive side, that means there's redemption for something. There's redemption as an opening up for something like that. And I, I wouldn't put um, the doctrine of original sin in limbo or try to omit it as uh, some theologians in Germany try to do it as something. Oh, this is old, this is bad, this is blah, blah, blah. Um, no, I want to say uh, if... if um, Catholicism, if, if Christianity is not a tragic uh, religion, but a, a religion of redemption, a religion of having life in fullness and uh, having joy again. At the end, mm. Jesus, Jesus uh, doesn't stay dead. He, he's risen from the dead and there's redemption in this. And therefore I try to cope with the doctrine of, of original sin and try to think, what's the surplus of it? What it, does it mean to me? What does it mean for contemporary times in terms of aesthetic, in terms of um, becoming a person? And this is a, um, a huge starting point to have um, a point of, um, of tradition, mm. but to think it as, as something that is worth um, discussing in, in, in recent times. Um, we have the discussion about original sin in Catholic Church at the Council of Trent in the 16th century, and it's, it's uh, almost 500 years ago. But it's still worth mentioning um, this whole discussion about Augustine, about Luther, about uh, the Catholic Church, and um, the non-superiority of human beings having no authority over their lives. But being opened up to, to becoming a better person, to becoming uh, redeemed mm. and to acknowledge this, this process of being. We are not perfect and it would, be, it would be a huge mistake to think of us as being perfect. There would mm. be no room for improvement. There would be no room for development. And, and when we have traditions, we have something to work with. We have something to play with. We have something to keep on uh, handing down yeah. and and therefore I, I wouldn't say um, doctrine is, is something bad I, I would say some uh, doctrine is first of all something neutral it's uh, it matters more how we approach doctrine if we approach it as something um, sterile something obscure something that has mm. to be kept in a and a very narrow mindset that you have to um, know the exact wording in, mm. in the original language mm -hmm. to make it as, as sacred as possible. It's, it's kind of a false approach or mm. it's an um, approach of 
approach of non-equatics uh, equatancy. Equatancy? Yeah. Uh, it's not adequate. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, when we try to see it as material, when we try to see it as a starting point to, mm. to keep going on in, in terms of uh, salvation history, that it's a guidance towards the greater goal, a guidance into the mystery, then there's something absolutely worth and having doctrine as such. Mm. Well, that is a, that's a wonderful place to land this plane and end this in this gorgeous conversation. Uh, thank you so much, uh, and and folks really do pick up the book, uh, the fragility of language and the encounter with God on the contingency and legitimacy of doctrine. If you're someone interested in doctrine at all and uh, and the way we speak about God, it's definitely for you. And and I should. Um, uh, mention one aspect of the book, a pretty key aspect of the book that we haven't talked about at all, is is the um, the really working with Lacan and and and, and a bunch of other <laughs> continental philosophers and drawing them into the conversation around language, um, an event, an encounter, and, and I found that very helpful. So if, if that's your bag, then this is definitely your book. Um, so Flo, thank you for for joining us and and for writing the book and having this conversation. Is there anything else you want to promote or draw people's attention to at all uh, as as we come to a close? Uh, let, let me think about it. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me here. I'm I'm a bit intimidated. Um, I haven't practiced my English for quite two years because I was stuck here. Yeah, um, <laughs> you did uh, very under well. this roof. Um, so it, it was great for, for being here, for having me here. Um, I was intimidated because I I really like this podcast. I like oh. your conversation with Adam Kotzko, with uh, Ruth Jackson-Ravenscroft, with uh, Lee Marine uh, Tonestad. It's it's such a lovely place for, for chatting and oh. listening to you and chatting with great theologians. And it was wonderful. And I'm very glad that you invited me to this place to chat with right. you. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> um, that's very kind of you. Yes, and um, it was nice to see um, both Adam and, and Ruth being uh, on the back of the book as endorsers. Uh, that was <laughs> nice to see some some podcast friends all, all mingling together. Um, well, well, thank you for, for the conversation. And, um, yeah, we'll have to have you on again sometime. It's, it's, it's been a blast. And hopefully ah. at some point you can get, you know, get somewhere and practice your English you know, abroad, get out again, you know, hopefully, yes, hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for inviting me. It was such a pleasure to be oh, here. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>